Ladies and gentlemen, it's wonderful to see so many of you have agreed to brave the Manhattan cold to be with us here tonight. And tonight it is my very great honor and pleasure to present to you one of the greatest contemporary authors currently writing in Norway. She is here to tell us about her latest book, Well and Testament, which has just been published in a new English translation. Please do join me in giving her a very warm welcome, Vigdis Hjort. The first sentence in the novel goes like this. Dad died five months ago, which was either a great timing or terrible, depending on your point of view. Dad died five months ago, which was either great timing or terrible, depending on your point of view. The week before the father dies, the four siblings in the family have been arguing about the family's two summer houses. Personally, I don't think he would have minded going unexpectedly. The parents have decided that the two youngest sisters shall inherit them, and the two eldest be compensated with money. The eldest brother doesn't find this right, and phone his eldest sister Berglot, the voice of the novel. I was even tempted when I first heard to think that he might have fallen on purpose. They haven't had contact for a long time. Berglot has not seen her family in more than 20 years. But after she has talked with her brother, she decides, after much anguish, to step out on the battlefield on her brother's side. And just two days before Dad's fall, I had joined in, siding with my older brother. On a deeper level, this arguing about the heritage and summer houses is an arguing about what kind of family they have grown up in. Dad died five months ago. The two eldest siblings don't share their younger sister's opinion. The family has been nice and normal. Which was either great timing or terrible, depending on your point of view. On the contrary, they have experienced a frightening and violent father and a childish and irresponsible mother. These experiences are denied. And what I try to show by the novel is that what we don't want to talk about what we sweep under the rug because it's unpleasant or shameful still has big consequences. I should probably explain. What you just heard was a kind of reenactment of a speech held by Vigdis Hjort in New York back when her novel Will and Testament came out in Charlotte Baslund's English translation. And as you will learn in the second part of our conversation with Vigdis, it is that novel in particular that seems to resonate with readers in the UK and perhaps beyond. And she'll explain why she thinks that is a bit later in the episode. So there's that to look forward to and much more. Now, let's get back inside Victor Short's house on Nesuya in Norway for the second part of our conversation. I'm Rasmus Harbo, and you're listening to Scandinavian Fiction Podcast. I thought we should talk about Will and Testament. What does that novel mean to you now, years after you, you wrote it? Oh, I always, you know, forget my earlier work 
And sometimes when they are translated, of course, I have to work with them again. I have to read from it. But I do that in the kind of moment and then I forget them as well because I concentrate about the new things I wrote. But of course, there are similarities between a lot of my novels Yeah, and one of the similarities of one of the sort of permeating themes of many of your books is family dynamics and families. Why is that so interesting to to write about? Uh, because it's so um, it's so precious, and it's so everybody has a family, and if you don't have one, that's a problem as well. What we experience uh, when we are small is so important for the rest of our lives. And the relation to the parents are so um, i- important. And you can you can imagine, and it's, it's also an, an, just, a similarity between is mom dead and is that, the similarity is that uh, it's about persons that are knocking on the the door, knocking on the door, hope to be the door to be opened and to come in. And it's very, very tight. And that's the similarity between Berglot in Will and Testament and with Johanna in his mom dead. That they just knock on the door, knock in the door. And to be to hope and to be rejected, oh it's so painful and exhausting. Is mother dead? She would contact me if mum died. She has to, hasn't she? I called mum one evening. It was in the spring. I know that because the next day I went for a walk round Borea with Pax and it was warm enough for us to sit on the bench by Osesund and eat our sandwiches. I had barely slept that night because of the phone call and I was glad to be seeing someone that morning and that someone was Pax. I was still shaking. I was ashamed to have called mum. It was against the rules, and yet I'd done it. I'd promised myself I wouldn't, and they wouldn't want me to anyway. Nor did she pick up the phone. The busy signal started the moment she declined the call, and yet I called her back. Why? I don't know. What was I hoping for? I don't know. And why this paralyzing shame? And now I think about Strindberg. Strindberg, he has in his um, drama, his play, um, 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 dream play, it's called. There you have one, a, a captain that is in love with um, Victoria on the, in, on the theater. You know, and he's coming four times. He's coming during the play um, on the stage. And the first time he's, you know, had this flower and he's very in love with Victoria, Victoria. Victoria is not coming out. And then, you know, he's one, the second time he's coming, so Victoria, Victoria. 
And the third time, Victoria, Victoria, no, no. And the fourth time, you know, he's old and the flowers are dead, Victoria. And that's a kind of what I let my characters do is that at one moment they give up because it's a freedom in the resignation. I don't want to hope anymore. It's so exhausting to hope and be rejected. I'm leaving. They are going. So that's a kind of a freedom process. But I just want to say that when a little baby is coming, uh, we don't have to talk about a mother or father because, but the primary caretaking person. But even if it's a biologic, um, biological mother, you know, the child is coming. The child knows that if they don't take care of me, I die. They are looking up in the faces of this God-like uh, uh, persons. It's dead or alive, depends on these persons. And that's a kind of power, unlike power. It, it lives in you all, all your life. So it's a very, very special relation between the primary caretaking persons and a little child. And so it's a kind of uh, unsimilarity in, in power that you you'll always carry that um, with you. So it's that's why it's very interesting to you can grow up as much as you will. The question is not is mom dead, but can a mother die? No, mm. she cannot. She cannot. She's living. Yeah, and you know, um, I have a scene in Is Mom Dad that I think it's uh, speaking for itself. It's taken from Roy Anderson's film, one of uh, Roy Anderson's films, and you have these toy sellers that are sitting in a sad motel in the woods of Sweden and haven't sold any toys, and they have a room um, next to each other, and the one is playing all the time this folk song uh, dear little Anna if you want you will marry me and we will have a nice time and we will have a lot of children and live together mom, 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 mom. and then at the last we will die and co come to heaven and meet mother or father again and he's playing that again and again and again and again and the colleague is so tired of that. He's knocking on the door and say, what you? And then he see that the colleagues are crying, crying. I said, why are you crying? Because I don't want to meet mother and father again in the heaven. And that, I think, it's very speaking for itself. It's a hard work from both sides uh, for a child and the primary uh, uh, caretaking persons, usually a father or a mother or two mothers or two fathers, um, or adaptive, uh, but that to get rid of the ambivalence. I think that you have always ambivalence towards the people that are so important for you. So that's why we are always ambivalent to our parents in one way or the other because they are 
being so powerful. And some people, especially in the generation that uh, um, Berglöt's mother and Johanna's mother, the generation of that kind of mothers, they were powerless, um, most of them. They were dependent economically and in other ways on their their husband, the father was earning money, but what they ha they had power over the children, mm. and it's likely to believe that conscious or unconscious, they have used the power. One place they had power over the children, and they I think so. And also I think that when the, this generation, most of them are so happy that the daughters, my generation, has had a lot of possibility they never had. But there can also be a kind of jealousness and bitterness. Oh, you can do that. You can, you can uh, divorce. You can travel. You can earn money. I, I never got. So I think no, that, that's, that's an ambivalence the other way around as well. So it's so complex material, material, and everything that is very complex, it's very interesting. Because when you are a little and depending, you, lo you love your parents. That's the only one you know you can love. Uh, and, um, and you admire them, and uh, you want them to, to look at you, you want that they are proud of you, all that kind of thing. So you. All you see when you're little is your parents, 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 and you are so aware of them. If they had, mm, oh, and if they sometimes say, "Oh, now you're clever," oh. so it's it's a very special relationship that is interesting to to explore. For you as an author, what is it like being translated? What is it like having your work translated? I, I have colleagues that are reading the translators, especially um, my colleagues that um, speak very well English. And some of my colleagues are, you know, have studied English or have even translated books into English, or into Norwegians from England. So they are, you know, they are reading to be sure that um, to control the translation work. But I, I never do that. I think that a new version is a new kind of art. And I trust, I trust the translator. And I have reasons to trust her <laughs> because uh, the books are very well received and they wouldn't be in that if she was a bad translator. So I, I have respect for her work and her independence and trust that she will find the tone, the language tone uh, in one way or the other. When I, I get a translation, I find one piece of um, um, two pages or something like that. I can, I can read why I'm, I'm talking about it, but I don't read 
the the book through now and working on other things. I wanted to mention to you, you probably know it already, your English translator once described your uh, your writing like this, her characters may be out of control, the writer never is. <laughs> no, but it, um, I, yeah, I think that that's the result, I hope, is like that. But it's not, it's not true uh, during the working process. I have to be out of control a lot of times um, to uh, seek out, to find a way. I can write wow, a lot of things. I can go far down that and I can take myself back. No, no, not in that, in that direction. But I hope the result is like that. But I take a lot of decisions and I uh, experiment about which way am, am I going now? This way or this way? or So I allowed the voice of the novel or the person that are, that are telling to go in a lot of directions to find the way. In that uh, phase, Fasse, you should not be in control because then you know you, you must allow yourself to go a lot of ways. Maybe you can, ah, maybe I shall kill her. Mm. Yeah, we, we try that. No, 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 okay. It's too too dramatic. We, we, we go another way. But I allowed myself to, to experiment. We have talked about speed, and I think that speed is a kind of a quality in literature. And then I, I must allow myself to no, and that is not controlled. But when I read that text afterwards, I am very calm. But I don't. This calmness is not taking away the speed. But when I read it, I'm calm. When I write it, I'm like that. Oh. And I allowed myself to be totally out of control but when I read it I'm calm and I see if there's a speed and uncontrolled uh, writing is good or makes something and then uh, it, I can use it Luckily I was going for a walk with Pax round Borja the next day I could hardly wait my inner trembling would lessen once I talked to Pax I picked him up from the station, and the moment he got into the car, I told him what I had done. Called mum, I offloaded on Pax, all the way to the car park, all the way round Borja, and he didn't think it was strange that I had called mum. I don't think it's strange that you want to talk to your mum. I still felt ashamed, but less shaky. But I've nothing to say to her, I said. I don't know what I would have said if she had picked up the phone, I said. Perhaps I was hoping that something would spring to mind if she answered her phone and said hello in her own voice. Do you get any reactions from readers in the world who have read the translations? And I wonder if you do what that's, what that's like to get a perspective that isn't Norwegian or Scandinavian, but say an experience from, from the UK of reading your book. Do you ever get that? Yes, I do. Uh, I've got a lot of, of letters from UK, actually. 
uh, most um, concerning to to will and testament, and that's because people has uh, they tell about um, that they have had similar conflicts in the family and that it was in a way nice to read about it so they don't feel as the only person in the world who has experienced that kind of conflicts um so so i have ha- had that kind of reactions yes and some can say that identify with berglet or i identify with um the brother board they identify with board and some also have written to me and said that they are identifying with especially one of the sisters and that the sister that is try to make peace in the family and so i think that's also a kind of even though every family is different the roles in the family could be similar in some so example the 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 peace making person the peace person that was negotiating peace often when you have a lot of siblings one sibling often will take that role in the family so i think that the, the family dynamic um can be even though you don't have to have the experience that bear will have you have a kind of mechanism that's easy to to uh so to to chen um recognize, recognize. I recognize, yeah. You've lived abroad in the past. Do you know why you ended up coming back to Norway? Because Norwegian is my language. My language is so important for me. I tried to learn. I lived in two years in France or one, one and a half year in... Ah, actually, I lived two years in France, two and a half years in France and half a year in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But I gave up to learn French because, you know, to be good in french you must to do be ironic to be uh, funny uh, to discuss on a interesting level you must it, it takes so long time so i gave up and in one way i've given up english as well because i, I think it's so difficult to be myself so to be in a country that talks my language it's um, the only way it feels like i can be vigdis um, i can only be vigdis when i'm in norway speaking norwegian uh, and my hero in the norwegian literature dag solsta he can't even say thank you in english really <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want that you know he has his wife you know translating for him if he must talk but still i admire very much people that are have learned another uh, language as Conrad for example uh, or um uh, what's the name of um the the man that lived in Argentina from Poland um Vitol Gombrovich mm. Gombrovich as well who learned you know by accident he by accident he was coming during the war on a boat and was um, staying in Argentina and and did uh, learn to, to to write in English and Beckett as well so i admire this very much but they are very talented that could manage that I, i'm not that talented so you say that ah, yeah, well. do you 
after 40 years of writing novels, do you doubt yourself? No. Um, no, no, I don't. But I see that some of my novels are better than others. Um, of course, um, and I know something about why. And because it's, it can be very painful to deal with heavy stuff. But when you do that, um, it, it, the result is often better than when you don't. But to deal with the heavy stuff all the time is very tiring and exhausting. So that I sometimes can write things that are not that painful to write about. Um, it, it's allowed, it's allowed. And it can be funny um, and you should allow yourself to, to be easy and funny and not very serious all the time. So I allowed myself to do different things. Um, musicians are talking about to develop a third ear so that they can listen to themselves or if they have recorded some, listen to themselves as if there was another who was playing. And I think that writers also have to, most writers develop a kind of third ear to, to manage to read themselves um, the text as you haven't written it yourself. So that's what I try to do. And I, my experience, I have also um, had this kind of um, writing, um, not school, but courses in, in writing. And then it's, it's, you can see that people that are not experienced, they have, they are, when they are reading through their novel or through the, the piece of um, text, they are, and they are reading, go fast to what they really like. But you should do the, the other thing around. When you are bored, the reader will be bored as well. Your attention should, should be there. But I, I see they are to the climax. Oh, and they said, and I was so loved in the climax. But vanligheten... Nej, var en vanlig läser. The ordinary reader. You know, he will never come to the climax because it's so boring before. <laughs> so it's, it's I, I think that to, to know, to have your attention on the places that you are not satisfied. It's, uh, it's boring, but it's necessary. Do you think you'll ever stop writing? No, I don't think so. But maybe I stop publishing. That that's another thing. It's. Uh, but I think that uh, the way of thinking I'm doing when I'm writing, I'll never stop with that. Um, so um, so no, the answer is no. But uh, publish uh, books. That's something. Maybe I can stop with that if I if I don't have to say something to a public out to other people or if I suddenly start writing bad or I don't feel I manage to make a novel, to construct a novel, 
then I hope I will stop. So this is where we leave Vic Dishyord, and I really hope you enjoyed these first episodes of Scandinavian Fiction podcast. There's much more to come in the future, and if you need more Scandinavian literary fiction in your life, I'd recommend you sign up for our newsletter. You can do that on scandinavianfiction.com. I promise it's going to be worth it. So that's all for now. I'm Rasmus Harboy. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>